Athletic. Right, Reds, Tony Evans here with Walk On, your Liverpool podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Well, that was more like it. Liverpool sends Everton packing. We'll react to the Derby Day win, highlight a few standout contributions, as well as looking over the key findings from UEFA's independent review into last May's Champions League final in Paris. All that here in the company of Kiva O'Neill and Andy Jones. Well, let's get straight into it. Three words about the Derby. Kiva. What a win. I like it, I like it. Andy? Just pure relief, because I've just been <laughs> dead in this game. And then when it actually happened, he thought, oh yeah, that was all right in the end, honey. <laughs> For me, take that, blue noses. Let's have a look at what people have been saying on a Facebook walk-on group. Matthew Brown, never in doubt. James Owen, Pickford's brain persists. Pain, pain, pain. That was a Freudian slip. I was thinking to myself, Pickford's got a brain. Um... Pam Dixon, trusting Klopp. And Tom Chesco, more like him. And now Liverpool could tear forward. And they've got the numbers. Nunez, three waiting for the ball across. What a counter from Liverpool. What a counter. Mo What a win. It's the perfect outcome from Liverpool. But I don't want to rain on everyone's parade here. But I prefer it when I see a performance against better teams than Everton. But having said that... The speed was back, the counter-attacking, and it was a great team performance, wasn't it, Kiva? I believe Andy Jones has just been saying that before we were recording the podcast, actually. So maybe Andy can uh, take this first question. I'll jump in just after. Well, go on, Andy. Well, yeah, I mean, it was interesting because I, I apologise if I end up calling Everton Burnley because I've obviously watched Sean Dyche and Sean Dyche teams for a number of years now. And like last week, you got the best version of a Burnley side against Arsenal. And I thought last night you got sort of the worst um, sort of side of a, a Burnley performance um, of, of Sean Dyche's previous previous job. And that was partially, that was a lot down to Liverpool and how well Liverpool played. But uh, I just thought Everton were really, really, really poor and just offered nothing. And they were hampered, obviously, by Dominic Calvert-Lewin's absence. But Liverpool showed signs and, and were looking back to sort of you know, doing what they, they usually do, and that was dominating the midfield, which, you know, we've talked a lot about this this season of, of them not being able to do, and I'm sort of nullifying anything that Everton tried to do during the game, and and then you look at the goals and the contributions, and, and the front three all at least got, you know, goals and assists for, for all of them, you know, goals for Gapo and Salah, assists for Nunes, so on that, in the end, it became what, you know, perfect outcome in, in that sense, in that you saw a lot of signs of, of really good things, but it was certainly helped by sort of Everton's ineptitude, if you like. Kiva, one moment for me, it's one of the memorable derby moments. Turkoski Tur- in the post, and the next thing you know, seconds later, they go up the other end and score. Well, what a moment! But again, the pace was there the pace, the counter attack and pace, the sort of stuff we love to see. Yeah, I absolutely love this goal because watching it from the main stand, you sort of, you know, you see Tarkovsky rise high, the head is going in all the way until it isn't sort of doinks off the post. Then I think Trent Alexander-Arnold kind of gets in the way. Cody Gakpo, I think, is he involved as well defensively? Both of them turn up. Liverpool managed to sort of get it away. Darwin Nunes, little one-two with Salah and, and, and off he goes up the left flank. Salah with him, everyone with him. It just seemed like 
I don't know how many defenders Everton had back after watching count, but it was just absolutely punishing. It was the perfect Liverpool counter-attack. There's a simple answer to that. Not enough. Not enough, definitely, yeah. But it just, watching that, I kind of like, obviously it was just under 13 seconds. They sort of flashed just past you. Like, you know, I did tweet at the time, Red Arrows, and we have spoke about Liverpool being that before, but it's just been such a long time since they've scored a counter-attacking goal that was that good. You kind of just knew straight away as soon as they were on the break that this was going to be the moment they were going to score, even, you know, at the halfway line when you're seeing all these red shirts get forward. It felt like, right, they can't mess this up, surely. And it, it you know, it comes after Everton almost score from a set-piece. Liverpool haven't been great on set-pieces this season, but defended them well against Everton and, you know, got the rewards on that counter. It, it just felt like a, a real Klopp goal, a, a Liverpool goal under Jurgen Klopp, didn't it? And, and the second one absolutely did as well. Yeah, and Andy... The midfield. For once, we can be positive about the midfields. We've moaned so much about them. We've complained. We've hung every one of them out to dry. We've even turned Fabinho into a swear word. And actually, he was quite good last night. Uh, but what about Bersetic? Yeah, I mean, what I mean, what more can you say about him at this point? You know, this is a young lad who, who shouldn't be doing what he's doing effectively, given his age, given where he was, you know, at the start of the season even. He was a player probably looked at as, as someone in the future, but he's, he's become in a few short weeks, effectively, you know, a major part of what is going to be, you would think, Liverpool's midfield makeup moving forwards this for the rest of the season and, and beyond. It's just that composure, that sort of calmness, that that brain that is well beyond the years and that, you know, of, of how old he is. And, you know, Derby's the type of game where him, and especially with a, you know, his type of his profile in terms of his physicality, he's a player who Everton probably would have looked, you would have expected to look to target and try and really get into and and knock him off his game. Similar to sort of right at the start of last season when when Burnley uh, put a lot of challenges in early on Harvey Elliott, which I think Klopp wasn't very happy about. And, you know, that, that type of style where you can just get into them and, and try and knock them off the game. But there's just not, you just can't do that with, with Bersetic because... You know, you try and get close to him, you move the ball quickly, or he'll turn away from you. And it's just that calmness. And and he, you know, he obviously moved position as well. And you know, he he played so well in that six. It was he didn't quite know exactly what to, what to expect in that eight. Although he has played there, because I thought, I think his, his first cameo after the World Cup was he came on as an eight, didn't he, against Villa? Um, that's where he scored and looked really good there. So I thought eight might be where he played, but then moved back into the six and learned very very quickly after that. And yeah, he's it's it's just top draw, isn't it? Just to see a young lad who. It's just playing with that freedom and that confidence, um, and, and and that showed it. And he was helped by Fabinho and Henderson, who looked much much more like their older selves. It was, it still wasn't, you know, perfect, but they were much much better than they have been, um, and sort of put themselves back in the uh, in the thinking for for games, you know, starting games moving forward. What was it like being there, Kiva? I mean. You know, I'm familiar with the Anfield atmosphere, obviously. You know, been many, many years. I wasn't there last night, but you were there. I mean, there must be listeners to this pod who, you know, don't get the chance to go to Anfield. And to get a sense of what it was like, I mean, Jürgen said the atmosphere was outstanding. I'm in love with my crowds and what they did. Oh, Jürgen. And I saw a real unit tonight where everyone was fighting, really, really fighting. What was it like? Give us a sense of Akiva. Well, it is Valentine's Day and it did feel like a bit of a love-in, didn't it? I, um, I think Spy and Cop had organised a, a flag day, hadn't they, on the cop? So there was a lot more mm. flags and banners, I think, than maybe you'd usually see. Obviously, there's always plenty on there. So that made it just gorgeous, colourful. You know, that excitement for the derby is always there anyway. But I think as the game went on, 
and different things happen. The goal, obviously the second goal, obviously Robertson and, and Pickford coming together, Robertson laughing at him and all that kind of stuff and then it boiling over. It was just, you know, it was crazy in there. Like Liverpool fans singing, you know, this is your last derby at Anfield and, and that kind of stuff and you're going down and, you know, the kind of stuff you'd expect from rival fans aimed at another group of rival fans in the corner, probably quite unhappy with what they've been seeing from the team this season, maybe not last week, but definitely um, definitely on Monday night at Anfield. But yeah, it was just just one of those Anfield nights where you think, yeah, this is it's pretty special. Public service announcements. We'd like to thank our blue friends for their contribution to the atmosphere at Anfield. Anyway, Manchester United, Arsenal and Tottenham still to come, and Real Madrid next. Andy, do we feel any better about this? I think you'd have to, don't you? I mean, to be honest, could we have felt any worse? Um, it was getting to that point, wasn't it? And I think what Liverpool have shown this this season at home, especially, is that when the big games have come up, they've generally... Well, you, you look you look at Everton last night and then you look at Man City and they've found ways to win the games. And obviously they were much more dominant against Everton than they were against Man City. But I think when you've got that unity and, and that togetherness between players, coaching staff and supporters, it's so important. And I think that you you could see how, how the crowd helped last night and then and the players responded to that and also they gave the crowd something to you know, get behind as well. They won the first 15 and I don't think you can say that much about Liverpool this season. They won the first 15 minutes just in terms of the way they set up and what they were doing and and I think that helped and I think they've just got to keep doing that now and taking that and hopefully, I don't know we've said this a couple of times this season, but you hope that this is a foundation and sort of a starting point to really build on and, and there's no better way to start building it than by winning a derby. I know we've already spoke about Stefan Bersetic, but I do want to mention him again, just because sort of leading off what Andy said there, it just felt like the first 15 minutes, how crucial are they in games? And I feel like he was all over the pitch, just winning little tackles, little battles, which you wouldn't really expect from an 18-year-old, you know, the third youngest Liverpool player to start in the Premier League either against Everton, the youngest player on the pitch, our producer guy, said that he was putting fires out like like Ginny Wijnaldum used to do, which, you know, I think Liverpool fans watching that last night were just absolutely in awe of, of his performance. And I've um, written me, me match piece on him, which, you know, I think quite a few people in the in the press box last night would have done because he was just that, that much of a standout. And I know his dad, Serdan, who used to play professionally for many clubs and Celta Vigo as well, where obviously Stefan joined Liverpool from in, in 2020. He was watching from Vigo where he works as a coach and um, he was watching with the telly on mute, which I absolutely love. It's a little anecdote in my piece because he likes to concentrate on the game when his son's playing. And I just mean, I just find it like absolutely magic that he had the TV on mute and his son was still making noise. Brilliant. And just really briefly... What was your favourite moment? I mean, there's obviously the Rob Robertson Pickford debacle, which was quite funny, and and obviously Cody Gakpo getting his first goal was quite important. But I think I think Pickford's sort of adventure that he goes on for uh, Liverpool's first goal, where he just completely misreads it and uh, thinks Cody for all the world that Cody Gakpo the ball's going to Cody Gakpo, and then Mo Salah just sort of sticks his toe out and uh, 
makes Pickford. You can't look... do that kind of thing when Mo Salah's running at you. Exactly, which I think just made Did it all really the more funny. Do you think funnier. Mo Salah is not going <laughs> to try and go for that ball? And I think that baffled a lot of us, didn't it? Exactly. I, I figured he thought it was half time and he was on his way to the tunnel. I can't, can't believe where he did. But I agree with you, Andy. That was my favourite moment too. And Kiva, yours? Yeah, there's quite a few, isn't there? I feel like I'm just on a, I just want to talk about Bassetic all night, so and and all day. So yeah, I think when he won the what the ball back in the build up to Cody Gakpo's goal, because I think both goals were real Liverpool Klopp goals for different reasons. One that, you know, gorgeous counter attack, quick, fast, aggressive, punishing. And then the other was similar, but it started with obviously a player pressing, winning the ball back, everyone sort of swarming around Everton players to help out, and then Liverpool going up the other end and scoring. So I feel like that was a moment. I mean, Klopp absolutely loved that, being near to him and seeing his reaction for that. Everyone loved it. It just felt like those were two glimpses in the game, which was, you know, pretty controlled and, all right, say what you will about Everton, probably not a performance they'll look back on fondly. But it just felt like they were those two goals and everything around them were just just special moments that I think fans haven't had this season much of, have they? Liverpool fans haven't had those moments to really enjoy. I feel like everyone walked out of that ground last night smiling, you know, happy. It's been a while since Liverpool fans have felt that way. I know fans watching around the world would have felt the same as well. Do you know what? Winter's over. Spring started. Liverpool are on the march. Bring on May. This is Tony Evans here with Kiva O'Neill and Andy Jones with Walk On from The Athletic. It's there for a Manchester to be successful. It really is. It's just a case of getting it right. We have the public, we have the stadium. I think that the owner or the chairman and the manager are crucial to each other. And if that's a good partnership and, and they're backing each other up and they're supporting each other, there's no reason why it can't be in the top four all of the time. That was the unmistakable voice of Sir Bobby Robson, talking to me, George Culkin, during the months and years before he died. Thanks to the generosity of his family, The Athletic are marking what would have been Sir Bobby's 90th birthday this weekend with Bobby 90, an exclusive four-part podcast series featuring previously unheard interviews with one of football's most iconic figures. It's packed with stories about growing up in the North East, managing Newcastle United, Barcelona, England, as well as players like Gazza, Brian Robson and Alan Shearer. And it details his repeated bouts with cancer establishing the charitable foundation which carries his name. It's Bobby at his charismatic and emotional best. Listen to Bobby 90 for free by searching for Pollen the Time on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all usual podcast providers. Tony Evans here with Kiva O'Neill and Andy Jones with Walk On from The Athletic. Well, Cody Gakpo's first goal. How important is that from Andy? I think it's going to be massive. I mean, you, you couldn't have wished for an easy finish, I guess, sort of as 
even was he even two yards out when he uh, when he taps it home? So you know, I mean, <laughs> to be fair, if he missed it, it might, it might have been the end of his Liverpool career. Just to miss yeah, we'll that. Have but... to do from there. I think I'd be like, <laughs> oh my god, I've got a score. I've definitely got a score. Please well, I, I mean, score. yeah, you can imagine because it sort of trickled to him as well, didn't it? So you can imagine what was going through. Like, there's so much was probably going through his mind. He's like, do not mess this up. But yeah, I think it's it was important for him because obviously, you know, it's getting to that point where you start questioning a little bit about what exactly like how exactly he fits into all this and you know when you, I guess for any striker or attacker when you don't come in and, and sort of get off the mark straight away I think it always plays on your mind and and the longer it goes on the worse it can get in terms of affecting you so I think it was just really important for him now he's got that first goal and and I think his his all-round performance was he grew into the game so that second half performance was superb the way he was getting on the turn a lot and he, he showed a little bit in the first half as well but He's got disabilities. He's not necessarily quick on the ball, but he, he glides with it, and players can't seem to keep up with him. And then you know, he's, and you can see that he's starting to link properly with with the rest of his, his, his attackers and, and finding the runs. And it seems to be a much more cohesive unit now. And and he knows what he's doing and and where to get the ball and how to be effective with it. And and then the, you know Salah and Nunes can can play off that with their runs and and their pace. I feel like his finish said that he's a finisher as well, didn't it? His finish said to me, I'm a calm finisher. He just hasn't really had those chances. And when he has, he's kind of hit them too soon or too early or just too hard. Yeah, and I thought he looked much more confident after the goal. Obviously, you would be. But I thought the front three as a unit began to look like something that might well scare people, which might be Klopp's front three point two. You know, I, I thought they were... Um, I thought there were signs that, and we've got caveat that it was Everton, but I thought there were signs that they were um, that they were quite dangerous. Yeah, I think if Darwin Nunes had scored, I just felt like, whoa, this is kind of like a throwback front three. This I feel like I'm watching Bobby Moe and Mane, you know, back in the day almost. We have to say back in the day now because it feels so long ago that we we've seen those three players play together. Of course, it was probably at some point last season. But yeah, it just felt like if, if Nunes had the score, then even though he didn't, but it just felt like, you know, when was the last time the front three of all scored a goal? It just it felt quite nice. And then you had Diogo Jota on into the mix and it was like, whoa, Liverpool have attacking options again. That's quite nice. Suddenly there's hundreds of attackers, you know. It's, uh, it's amazing. Well, what does this mean? And what does it lead to? I mean, one win and five in the Premier League. Oh, I'd say one win and one. Thank you. One win and one. Stats. Uh, but is this going to be the catalyst, Andy? Newcastle, you know, um, going up to the Tyne sides, take them there, and all of a sudden it's on. Well, yeah, I think that's that's the big thing now, isn't it? You've you've now got the opportunity where you're playing the team that you're chasing, and you couldn't have you couldn't have really built any better momentum than than what Liverpool did yesterday in terms of their beat your rivals, but also you do it convincingly. So I think I think that's the big thing, isn't it? It's it's now you go into that game with a bit more confidence, but also you've not necessarily put yourself right back into the Champions League mix, but you've given yourself a bit of chance. I mean, there's a game in hand on Newcastle as well, so there's a feasibility where. You know, if if Liverpool beat, would would to go away and beat Newcastle, you know that would, that would take it down to six points, wouldn't it? With a game in hand, so, you know, and if you win that game in hand, then obviously that's not a given. And as as they always say, you'd rather have the points on the board. You know, there's a, there's a world where suddenly you you can, you've got the opportunity to bring it down to three a three point gap. And I know that's talking a lot of ifs, buts, and maybes, but you know that that's the way Liverpool have got to be starting to think now. They've got to start chipping away and. 
you know that's why Newcastle's such a big game because it is it is who who they're chasing and and you've got to take any opportunity you can to you know to make inroads into the into those into that lead that they've built up. Yeah, well, it's quite interesting because I talk quite a lot to the people around in and around Newcastle, and they've been saying all season, to be fair, that their position in the league was slightly overinflated because the thinness of the squad means they might struggle later on. And they was, you know, keep saying, you know, just be calm about it. Let's not run away with qualifying for the Champions League. You know, this is a work in progress, that sort of thing. And the form seems to suggest that there's some truth in that because one win and five, I mean, they've drawn four, but, you know, it's not the... They they were sweeping people aside earlier on this season. Is this a good time to go there, Kiva? I think so. They're struggling to score goals of late, aren't they? Which is, you know, probably a good thing for for Liverpool, even though, you know, we might well see Virgil van Dijk back starting in defence, which would be a lovely sight, won't it? But yeah, it's always difficult. I remember last season, end of last season, Liverpool went to St James's Park. Just such a difficult game. Always is a difficult game. I feel like it'll be even more difficult this season just because of the momentum and belief. And we know exactly what that kind of feeling is like when you're watching a team, supporting a team that's doing well. It just, you know, it's almost like it's become a fortress there, similar to what, you know, Anfield has been in, in recent seasons, maybe not this season so far, but it was a step in the right direction last night and they'd have to go away from home, Liverpool, and and really prove that that just wasn't a one-off. You know, they have to go and back that performance up. And I feel like, you know, they have got the capability of of doing that and it'll be tough, but it's something Liverpool have to do because as Andy says, you know, you've got to beat the teams above you. And if Liverpool want to qualify for the Champions League, then that's exactly what they've got to do. They've got to go on some insane winning run now and go and do it. And it just feels like everything's in a bit of a better place. It's mad what a win can do, really, isn't it? Yeah, and one of the things for me as well about last night, which I thought was really important, was just seeing Virgil van Dijk back on the bench because the team over recent weeks, certainly at the beginning of this year, has felt like a leadership-free zone. And there's talent there, but there's no one to make them coalesce, no one to G them up, no one to organise. And if he's back for Newcastle, that's a massive, massive advantage to Liverpool. Don't you think, Andy? Definitely. Um, and I think you're right. I think especially, well, in in a number of games, sort of since the turn of the year, Liverpool have lacked that sort of driving force and that, that leadership. And I think I think it's fair to, to mention Jordan Henderson yesterday and, and his performance. I thought he was really really good and he brought that sense of leadership back to a midfield that while it'd been getting by in games I guess it wasn't sort of that powerful unit that that Liverpool's midfield can and has been in in the past and I thought Henderson brought that sort of leadership and those qualities back and I think Van Dijk's only going to add to that because it and it it just gives you that so much more stability and that sort of I guess that the feeling of of security and, and I know that's you know not necessarily been the case all the way through this season because Liverpool have have, you know, defensively not been anywhere near the, the standards they would expect, especially even with Van Dijk in the team. But to have him coming back and to bring that, you know, that communication and that that sort of assuredness at the, at the back, because, you know, Matip and Gomez did all right yesterday. Uh, I thought Gomez, you know, dealt with Sims really, really well and, and won a match or beat you would expect them to win. But there's a clear difference, isn't there, when, when you watch those two and sort of, I think we referenced it in a recent pod that neither of them are necessarily the, the leader of a defence the guy who sort of does all the, you know, do, does the sweeping up and, and like enjoys playing next to the guy who's in control and, and setting the line and all that type of stuff. So I think for either, it's going to be a benefit to them when Van Dyke comes in and whoever partners him. 
what a difference it makes as well with the fullbacks last night. I just felt like Trent and Andy Robertson were both fantastic, stretching the pitch, getting forward, getting back, just had loads of energy, just really competent performances, both ends of the pitch. I'm really balanced and they've just not been quite balanced in that way for a while. And when they are, it just shows how important, you know, Liverpool's flying fullbacks still are. We speak about the importance of Cody Gakpo's first goal for Liverpool. I think it was an important assist for Trent Alexander-Arnold his, his first in the Premier League this season, which is baffling for him, given the, you know, the bar he set himself in in recent seasons. I just felt like, you know, Andy Robertson has been given is all I've thought, you know, when other players maybe haven't in recent weeks, definitely in terms of the passion level. And you've seen that last night, you know, at its best. But yeah, I just feel like both of them haven't been having the best season. And last night it just felt like, all right, okay, maybe, you know, this is the start of them two getting back to their best and and how crucial that'll be for Liverpool. Well, that's a very, very good point. Because in recent weeks, I felt like Robertson's been negatively aggressive. His attitude's right, but it's not going quite the way he wanted to do and you could see the frustration last night he was positively aggressive and when he's like that it's brilliant isn't it winding up the opposition getting forwards getting crosses in and just causing havoc down the left and that's exactly what we want to see from him well the dogs of war have been tamed and things are looking positive for the reds this is walk on brought to you by the athletic This is Walk On, brought to you by The Athletic with me, Tony Evans, Kiever O'Neill and Andy Jones. Well, just before the derby kicked off, the findings of UEFA's independent review into the failings at the Stade de France were leaked before UEFA published the report. And joining us to discuss this is our senior football writer, Ollie Kay. Well, Ollie, what did you make of the report and the main findings? Well, uh, I was encouraged by it and yet angered by it. To be honest, I mean, I, I angered by the um, the reminders that, that you know of, of just how appalling the security arrangements were on the on the day. Angered by reminders of the you know, attempts to shift the blame onto onto the fans and and make up this complete fantasy about thirty to forty thousand fake tickets and you know blaming everything on the fans and trying to praise the police and justify the um, the use of tear gas, etc. And I'm just glad that those lies have been exposed and that the fans have been exonerated and, and cleared and praised for saving lives rather than endangering them as, as, as the French authorities did and encouraged as well that, that there's talk of trying to implement changes in it and a different culture around um, around policing and security at, at these big Champions League events because this, you know, it's, I know it was the Champions League final, the biggest club game in, in in Europe every season. But these kind of issues arise very often away games in Europe, in Spain, France, Italy, where there are issues with policing, issues with crowd control, and what we saw in Paris could have ended in in disaster. And a report states that you know it is remarkable that no one lost their life, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's. A positive thing, undoubtedly, that the failures, the massive failures and failings on the day are in there, detailed, impossible for the authorities to ignore, and that there are going to have to be changes. Well, I mean, there's a lot we could get into here, with, and which is, it's absolutely shocking what's going on, but... Mm. One point I'd like to make, this is a stadium that was attacked by a terrorist bomber. 
So you'd think they're going to have it locked down, they're going to have it sorted out in case it happens again. And yeah, hundreds and hundreds of local youths were allowed to swarm into the stadium. And the two things that amaze me is UEFA admit that, uh, well, the, the report says that UEFA's safety team was sidelined. And which is absolutely unbelievable. And the way they seem to conveniently forget the problems they had in the 2006 Champions League final that featured Arsenal and Barcelona, where um, mm-hmm. they said that they should never have it in that stadium again. Was it just a result of the panic to get it somewhere after it was moved from St. Petersburg? Or is this is this UEFA's failings actually just laid bare in front of us? Well, I mean, it was it was a last minute switch from from St Petersburg, wasn't it? Just due due to the um, issues around um, around Russia and it, the way it's described in the in the um, in the report, it sounds as if almost no consideration was given to that. It was it was, it was just a phone call a phone call from UEFA to the French authorities to say, "Oh, would you fancy stepping in?" Yes, of course we will. And it sounds like you know, there was almost no due diligence done by UEFA on, on the Stade de France or by the French authorities on the event. It's, 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 it looked like um, they were just sort of working from a from a playbook from the 80s, basically, sort of mm. treating the um, visiting fans, and not just Liverpool, Real Madrid as well, as animals, as you know, a, a threat to security. And I think the threat to security came from the locals, as you say, and from the police because, you know, they were they were – using tear gas, using aggressive policing in situations where it was completely, completely unnecessary and dangerous to do so. There are just so many questions which I think people had in the aftermath. People, the same questions are being made, asked by the by the panel and, and they're saying, well, you know, the authorities haven't been able to answer these questions. So look, I, I, I'm, I'm pleased that the the blame is being sort of cast fairly wide among the authorities, UEFA, police, etc., and that the fans are being cleared of any blame because, I mean, what, what I've read in the report completely underlines what I felt in that crowd on the, on the night, which was that these fans are being incredibly calm and patient in what feels like a really dangerous situation. I thought the report did well with that, uh, saying that the the fans' experience and knowledge of mm. Hillsborough meant that they were less likely to panic, and that went a long way to stopping the fatalities. But one thing I do want to address here is you get, on social media particularly, a lot of fans of other clubs going, oh, it's always Liverpool, it's always Liverpool, but it's yeah, not. Yeah. It's not. Here's the difference. Liverpool often get to big games where there is more media focus on it. So you're going to hear it's Liverpool. Actually, it happens to a lot of clubs in Europe. And if you're match goers, you know about that. And the the urge to demonise football fans is is so ingrained, it's untrue. And you, Ollie, said uh, there perfectly, the, the attitudes are set in the 80s. And sadly, fans of other clubs who were football fans themselves and who will complain about being demonised themselves are so quick to have those 80s attitudes. Do you think, Kiva, that this is, you know, it's a wake-up call for other fans, surely? I think, you know, this is obviously the the false narratives have been disproven and and Liverpool fans, you know, we we knew that anyway. I was at the game and I knew the, like Ollie says, the patience and the calm of, of Liverpool supporters save lives. And obviously this is, you know, what the, the reporters said, 
we we knew that already. I think, you know, it was difficult in the aftermath because of those false narratives which were driven straight away from UEFA putting out that, you know, fans were arriving late or, you know, whatever else they were saying about fake tickets and different things. You know, that that was hurtful because when you were there and you experienced it and seen what happened, you, you wanted people to know that that, you know, that wasn't the case and that anyone can go through this. And I think Paris and what happened is like massively triggering for a lot of people now and a lot of people who haven't gone back to the game that won't go back to the game again because of what happened and their experiences there. You know, even just hearing the word Paris in popular culture and it's in quite a lot of popular culture. Sometimes I go Paris and then I sort of think about it a little bit and it's like post-traumatic, isn't it? It's it's not an enjoyable thing to think back to and those experiences and we don't want that to happen again and that's why this report is important because obviously it calls on UEFA and other authorities as Ollie has mentioned you know they've been in the wrong so they need to write this now but going forward you know there's recommendations there that Liverpool have called on them to you know put through and put into place because this can't happen again because this felt like it could have been, you know, a lot worse than it was and, and we're lucky that people didn't die. And and that's not what you should be saying when you've been to a Champions League final. No, no. And the thing is, the French authorities, there's a little bit of, um, they've given the Gallic shrug, haven't they, Ollie? And because um, there's been no resignations or sacking over it, even though uh, clear there's a, a, a lot of culpability that lies there. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what... Um how the the interior minister and the minister for sport respond to it because they were i mean in the immediate aftermath i i felt their words were a complete disgrace Darmanin, the um the, the interior minister was very quick to pass the buck praise the praise the security operation the sports minister the same praising the organization creating this false narrative about you know 40,000 fake tickets and you know all these liverpool fans that were trying to force their way in it was complete I mean, it was it was lies, and the lies have been exposed and have been called reprehensible in the independent report. It's you know it's great to see the independent report standing up against them, but I, I do I do wonder what how they respond to that. Will they come under under internal pressure? You know, the, the, there were there was a bit of internal pressure, media pressure at the time, but will, you know, will they? You know, will, will people be calling for you know resignations because it was a disgrace on the day, which I accept. You know, that's not. That's not that doesn't come down to a newly newly appointed sports minister, but the rush to the rush to blame people and jumping to conclusions was was disgraceful. You know, you would hope that there would be consequences for for those who are who have lied and who have defended the indefensible while smearing people who are praised in the report for for their restraint and for their responsibility and and for saving lives rather than endangering them. Well, yeah, again, if we go back to what I was saying before, the lesson that people should learn from from Liverpool fans and what they've experienced over the years is that, well, whether it's in South Yorkshire or Westminster or whether it's in Paris, that the authorities will lie to save their own bacon. And Seferin, I mean, the fact that he was making decisions he made a decision to put the to delay the game 
on the stairs after having a, a little chat with the king of Spain. It's like, oh, it's ugly. I mean, it's, you know, actually, when you think of Paris, it's appropriate. We need the guillotine for these people. Metaphorically, <laughs> metaphorically, that is. I'm not advocating chopping anyone's heads off. Not much. Metaphorically. But no, these people need to be cleared out. It's outrageous. Andy, I mean, are, are you annoyed by that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to be, you'd you be... You'd be mad not to be, wouldn't you? The whole thing of it, really. I mean, my, my dad was there, but was fortunate enough because of, of stuff that's happened in the past and sort of, he always references Athens and, and sort of the carnage and, and chaos there of 2007. He gets the games, especially like big finals, really, really, really early. So he was in the ground before it even sort of started to to get to the levels it got to. You know, there's so much that that's wrong about it. There's so many people who you can put the blame on and, and none of them are Liverpool fans, which is, as, as Ollie was saying, that the key thing to, to all this is is that finally sort of, I don't know, it's taken a while, um, but, you know, again, it, Liverpool fans had nothing to do with what happened and it was all, you know, the responsibility of, of those, you know, of, of the French Football Federation, the police and, and UEFA and all that. So, yeah, you, you have to be annoyed because... This it was very very avoidable. You know, the, all these problems should have been identified, and even with a, a, a sort of a late change to the venue, if you like, it's not the first event they've ever held. You know, if it was, you, you might sort of have a, a tiny bit of sympathy, maybe because they they might have been. A, but you know, they, this is a, a a stadium and a venue which which should have you know no problems in having to set something up and and sort of assigning all these things and knowing the dangers, and knowing what problems might occur. So to still for it to all still happen, and then the way they've gone about it, Jordan, and then afterwards, it's just um, you know, it's a disgrace, really, isn't it? And and the key thing is, is as well that you know a lot of people's most emotional reaction is is about is about the lies that are in the you know the lies that came out initially, and and about the vindication and exoneration of 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 the fans, people wanting apologies, but it's the most important thing of all is that lessons are learned from, yeah, from yeah. what happened in Paris. You know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Paris now going to the PSG Bayern game tonight. Have lessons le- been learned for that? Are they going to, is it, are, are the, the big numbers of Bayern fans going to be safe, or, you know, arriving at, in a congest, congested stadium, Parc de Prince with streets around it? You know, is, um, you know, there's another Champions League final in, Istanbul in a in a few months time there's the Paris Olympics are on the horizon rugby world cup that there are all these huge events and I think what has to change is that is, is the approach to policing these events and that it's less about order but more about safety it, it, it's about policing in a way that just makes everyone feel safe rather than making everyone feel threatened and and I think that's the, the, the you know the state of France it, it was it was awful from that point of view it felt like the police were on a war footing and created a situation that wasn't there whereas they're meant to diffuse any tension and I think what we've got to see is is a different approach to policing like you get in other countries like you get in Germany for example that's what it's got to be. Yeah, without a doubt. There's two ways you can police a football game, a big football game. There's one, treat it like a party, and if it gets out mm-hmm. of hand, calm everything down, or treat it like a um, treat it like a riot. Last question, Ollie, and uh, very briefly, UEFA's going to analyse it. They're going to say, you know, they're going to look at it, and do you think they will come up with a series of recommendations and act on them? And do you think there's any faint hope that the French will moderate their behaviour? Well, I mean... People are saying, well, you know, that there are only three months for, for UEFA to, you know, react to this in in terms of preparing for the next Champions League final. But to be honest, 
UEFA should have been having their own internal investigation inquiry anyway and, and, and trying to learn lessons immediately. So they've they've not got three months between now and you know yes, it's three months between now and the final, but it's you know, it will be twelve months by then since the event. They have to have been looking at things, looking at their security arrangements, looking at their sort of safety arrangements, the way they police finals. There was the Euros final at Wembley as well, don't forget. I mean that was a totally different situation, policed in a totally different way. Fans behaved in a totally different way. That was a fiasco as well, in in, in a totally different way. But it's it just feels like all of these big events are becoming you know real flashpoints, and that has to change. It has to be there has to be a better balance in between letting people have a good time, as you said, being on police being in in, in riot mode, which is just completely unwarranted. It, it was probably warranted at Wembley, but not at, um, at the Stade de France. So yeah, look, I I hope I sincerely hope that UEFA and authority everywhere, not just in France, look at this and think, yeah, we need to do things differently from now on. Well, couldn't agree more, 100%. Football fans are not a danger to society. And especially when you look at that crowd that was going to the Stade de France, the Liverpool fans, frankly, most of them were like pussycats. Anyway, that's all for now from Walk On, your Liverpool podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Thanks to Kiva, Andy and Ollie as well as you for listening in. We'll be back on Thursday, ahead of the visit to Newcastle, so we'll catch you then. The Athletic.